Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend Julia Joja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. I should say that our friend uh, Giselle Donnell is running late and she might be joining us halfway through the podcast at some point. On the Eastern Front, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Dr. Franziska Brandner, the Parliamentary State Secretary for Economic Affairs and Climate Action in Berlin, and also a member of the Bundestag. Um, it's a great pleasure to, to have her with us, and if you enjoyed this episode, you should consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple, Pod, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Um, Dr. Brandner, one month after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you wrote a very compelling piece for European um, Council on Foreign Relations, where you made the case for what you called European sovereignty, and you outlined specifically four areas of policymaking where Europeans ought to step up, partly as a response to uh, Russian aggression. You mentioned uh, an increase in military ca capabilities of, 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 of European defense forces. You mentioned um, cybersecurity. You mentioned energy. And finally, you mentioned the need to really bolster finances of economies that are most directly affected by the economic fallout and the energy fallout of, of the Russian aggression. So, so here we are, uh, a little over a year later. What's your assessment of, uh, of the progress that's been achieved over that year? Uh, what were the sort of high points? What were the disappointments of that period? And, 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 and where do you really need where do you really see Europeans uh, as falling, falling behind what you prescribed in your initial reaction? Of course, the terrible part about it is that this war is still going on. And the news we're getting from Ukraine are, of course, you know, difficult news. So I think, you know, in a way we have come a long way. And when you compare it to, you know, at the beginning of the war, many analysts were saying Ukraine will fall in a couple of days. And I'm very happy that they were proven wrong. But it's also not the case that the war is over yet. So I think, you know, that it's um, what I have been very much working on. And I think where we can be sort of proud of is that we have not yet uh, seen a falling apart of European member states or the Europe uh, over Ukraine. And that we have had difficult moments, be it over some sanctions or be it over some energy issues. But we've always managed to come back together and unite the front. And I think that should not be underestimated when we look back over the last year. And it should be for all of us a priority to maintain that uh, united uh, action. And of course, also it's been a, a year of very close transatlantic cooperation which has also been important to us that we had a real partner on the American side uh, and there's a real, real partner for Ukrainians. So I think it's been, um, in that sense, looking back, I think uh, that is certainly positive. But is it you know, enough? Is it uh, good enough? What else could we have done better? I think these are questions we always have to go back to and see what, what else needs to be done as long as the war is going on. So then um, let me follow up directly on that and ask you what else needs to be done, <laughs> um, specifically on Russia. Um, 
you have been one of the most involved people in the decoupling from Russian energy in something that indeed a year ago we wouldn't have thought it would have been possible. A continent and a union that was mostly dependent on um, Russian energy, gas, oil, coal, um, even parts of, of nuclear energy is now mostly free of it. And yet, when we're looking into the numbers, it's not exactly that. When um, we're looking into sanctions and the price cap and exceptions to sanctions, but also um, sanctions, evasions, um, as we've, we're seeing reports over the last few months. So it's unimaginably good compared to a, a year ago, but it's not perfect. So then my question is, you having this overview about um, on Russian energy decoupling, can you give us your take in terms of what still needs to be done? What are your priorities in, in Germany and beyond at the level of the European Union to finalize successfully this decoupling? As you said, you know, I, I, a year ago, when we were saying at the end of the year, we want to be independent of Russian oil, gas and coal, people were saying you're just crazy uh, and you will have a very deep recession. Uh, and I'm you know, glad that we managed to become independent without a deep recession. And I think, you know, the one thing is becoming independent and the other is the price you pay for it. And the price that many had predicted was extremely high. And I think that was the important part as well, not just to become independent, but not to go into a very deep recession economically. And I think um, that we have been working very hard over the last year to make sure that we gain the independence, but also that we are not financially uh, at the end so weak that we cannot support Ukraine any longer. And I think it was always these two dimensions we had in mind is to say, you know, but with all the sanctions we undertake, we're not allowed to weaken us ourselves so strongly that we cannot support Ukraine any longer. And that was a tough bet to know what steps to take. And a lot of debate about this also in Germany. I remember very vivid debates with many experts, very different expectations, very different analysis and provisions. Um, so I think, you know, in the end that worked out well. As you know, the EU has set up a sanctions monitoring coordinator now. There are many conversations happening about how can we improve the implementation of the sanctions, because evidently with any sanction that is in place over some time, you have creative people who find ways around. That's normal. It's nothing specific about these sanctions. So it's usual that after a certain period of time of play, uh, sanctions in place, you have to check if the implementation and the enforcement is still working. And our ministry has made a couple of uh, proposals on how to improve that enforcement. I give you one example. Usually, everybody has the obligation to signal to state authorities when they get notice of sanction circumvention. That is not the case for the Ukraine sanctions. 
so you don't have that as a mandatory obligation for everybody to report at the authorities. Uh, that's something we would like to get um, at the European level. So there are things in there where you know what could make them more effective. And then there's the second dimension about what other sectors or what kind of new sanctions do we need. And uh, we have been proposing for quite some time sanctions in the nuclear sector as well as in the digital sector. You have to be on both sides very precise and make sure that, again, you know, you hit the right targets and not the wrong ones. So there are, of course, negotiations going on, but we think that these are areas, not the entire spectrum, but, you know, where you could identify some dimensions uh, for further sanctions. So we believe it's both. It's making the existing ones more effective and potentially adding new ones. Just as a quick follow-up, if you can clarify, we can kind of guess nuclear sector. We know that we're importing still bits and pieces necessary for creating nuclear energy. But what about the digital sector? Um, can you tell us in broad terms what you would want to target um, with that, where we have our weaknesses um, in Europe vis-a-vis -vis Russia? No, it's not that we have weaknesses, but, um, and, you know, I do not want to go into very much detail, but one, the first question you raised in what I've written um, in the past is about cybersecurity, uh, which is a really key dimension of security today. So I wonder if I could move to the other sort of big ticket item on your list from, from around a year ago, namely um, military capabilities and hard power. So the chancellor obviously set the expectations very high in the immediate aftermath of the invasion with the site and when the speech and a year later, it feels like we are sort of having the same conversation in Washington as always about, you know, Germans not doing their fair share and Germans being slow and... Germans fudging the numbers around defense procurement. What's 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 your take on that historic change that that arrived in in, in Germany or perhaps ha hasn't arrived? You know, I think it's been a, also a, quite a difficult debate in Germany about how to spend the hundred billion, which is not nothing. I'm like it's you know a huge amount. Of course, it's not in one year, but over a couple of years. And next to the money, we also had legal changes in the procurement policies of speeding up the procedures. So there are, you know, a number of tracks that are relevant for that. And we also had a change of minister in the meantime. So it's also relevant, I think, to admit that the current minister is has not been in place for too long. Um, and he seems to be really tackling the more maybe deep-rooted problems in terms of the procurement um, field. That's at least what he has been publicly saying. And we should give him the benefit of the doubt that he's really working on it. Uh, what I think we, we still have to improve is our uh, European coordination and cooperation in making sure that we have good common projects and little duplication. So I think, you know, on the entire European dimension, I think we also still could uh, improve in terms of making our defense industry more coherent and um, more competitive. The implementation of the funding, like the funding is massive. So I think, you know, it, it's really fair enough to say that Germany has turned around on that question. The implementation of how it will be spent has been worked on now for the last couple of months. and But I think it will take some months as well to to change it. It's a profound change. And um, 
So I, you know, it's not our ministry doing. So I, I want to give them the new minister the, you know, I think it would be wrong to say now this has been, you know, well or not good enough, etc. I think he's, uh, you know, I think he's seriously and hardworking on it. Since we're talking about transatlantic um, relations, um, you, Frau Brandner, um, have mentioned that uh, several times. I want to ask you about how you see U.S.-Germany relations going. I know I, I'm I'm sort of uh, caveting it here um, because I know you're an personally an Americanophile <laughs> um, that um, that you have valuable experience here that you've worked um, very much on building the transatlantic relationship. And yet, of course, like in any relationship, especially a complex one such as um, the one between Germany and the United States, there are hiccups. Um, one we mentioned with um, U.S. expectations vis-a-vis -vis, um, vis -vis the military spending, but, but also we've seen over the past few months, year, um, issues broadly transatlantic um, around the U.S. Inflation Protection Act, um, and not only. So if you are to look back and, and then look a bit ahead on the level of the bilateral relationship between the United States and Germany, how do you assess things? You know, I think that there, the relations between Germany and the U.S. are very good and on in many areas and on many levels. It's been a very intense relationship working out what we were just discussing, the sanctions, for example. I think, you know, a very uh, close cooperation, very close cooperation on the support of Ukraine, uh, very close cooperation on energy. So, you know, a number of areas uh, where I think, you know, the cooperation has been excellent. And then I think, you know, in terms of uh, what's uh, still ahead, you were mentioning the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, I was always saying, in a way, it's great that the U.S. government has uh, made a, a, a very relevant contribution to the next generation of our new technologies and uh, and that we should in a way, also recognize this and not just complain about it. And I think that was part of the message I was trying to convey, not just to say, oh, this is horrible and awful, and but also to say so many of the Europeans have been complaining in the past that the U.S. was not doing anything about it. So I said, you know, maybe we can first recognize that it's good that something is happening. And then in the second step, say that we have questions about the exclusion of European or, you know, Japanese or South Korean companies. But that's sometimes, I think, the difference if you are somebody who understands the U.S. and um, who knows about it and who knows how difficult it is to get majorities to pass such a bill, that maybe you do not just start by saying this is horrible, but you also recognize the way they have made Um so <laughs> in that sense, and I also think that, you know, we have to do our own homework. It's not just that we can put the blame on the U.S., but we also have our own difficulties that we should address in terms of our state aid being faster, less complicated. And, and that's now what the EU is working on. And I was very much pushing also to say, look, let's look at our own dif you know, difficulties. Let's work on them. And then let's partner with the U.S. to create this common space for the new technologies. And uh, let's try to get access um, to the process in the U.S. and also allow access to our process. And, you know, it, it's quite interesting because we had now the German equivalent a bit of the debate where we do support now heat pumps financially. 
And there comes an American investor and buys a German company. And everybody goes like, oh, this is the end of the world. And I was like, maybe it's not. Maybe it is not the end of the world. And and so I think, you know, we have to be recognizing that these are very difficult times and we need to be on top of the technological development. And for me, it's not the U.S. versus Europe. But we have to make this a joint battle, a race to the top and not to the bottom. So, you know, are there no questions or no difficulties? Certainly not. There are. But I always try to work on them from an angle of partnership and not assuming the other side wants the worst for us. But maybe we we, we can still work out better ways of solving the same problem, be it on the European side or on the American side. And I think, you know, this is possible with the current administration. And I hope um, you know, that we will keep that spirit because, of course, in difficult times, there are questions. Um, but yeah, the cooperation mood is the one uh, prevailing, which I think is important. I think it's very heartening to hear, especially at a time when I think the banner of European sovereignty or strategic autonomy is is taken by some as meaning greater autonomy of the United States in particular. And I think at a time when we are facing on both sides of the Atlantic unprecedented challenges, whether it's Russia and China, I think it's important to overcome this narcissism of small differences that has always been present in the transatlantic partnership. Uh, maybe to bring the discussion closer to the Eastern Front, so to speak, I was wondering whether I could ask you about Poland and about German-Polish relations. I mean, it's a subject that I think we are somewhat conflicted on, partly because obviously Poland is an important country. It's a big country that should be exercising its influence within the EU, should be punching above its weight in you know, the context of of, of, of of the current war. I think Poland has been a massive force for the good. At the same time, there are reasonable concerns about incumbent entrenchment, culture wars getting out of control. And then there is this sort of very sensitive topic of, 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 of the Polish-German relations and the topic of reparations coming up in the Polish conversation. So with your experience, both from, from, from the Bundestag and from the European Parliament, what is your assessment of, first of all, you know, the, the Polish role in Europe and the role that Poland could possibly play, and also of, of the relationship, which, again, I understand is very complicated, but still is, a, is an indispensable one for the EU to function properly. Totally. And, you know, if I may say one thing, which is a bit more general than Poland, but for many years there was within the EU the Visegrad, the four that were blocking, and, you know, I, I had the impression that they were not a force for driving things forward. Um, but, you know, trying to block. And I think that has fallen apart in a way that now Poland and the other member states of the, you know, former Visegrad, maybe Hungary is still a bit different, are playing a very constructive, forward-looking role within the EU. And I think that this is one of the most, you know, important changes within the EU that few do notice. But I think it's it's a very important one to notice. And we should be building on this to make sure that Poland and the other member states that were part of the Visegrad before, that they really feel that this is also their EU, that they do, they're constructing it together with us. Um, and I think that this is a spirit that I, I hope we can carry over. For us, it's a very 
also delicate question, of course. Um, I myself, for example, I've been arguing and fighting against Nord Stream 2 for many years, also always arguing that we should be in solidarity with our Eastern partners who have been raising the concerns like Poland. And of course, our Polish colleagues also know that I have been one of the most voiced critical of the reforms of the justice system. But they also know that I'm credible on being on the side of Ukraine for many years now. So it's, it's a very interesting relationship we have because I I really, I always appreciated their concerns and their raising questions and warnings. And I brought them into the German debate. Um, and at the same time, as you say, on the internal stage, I, I cannot stop also, you know, voicing my concerns. But I hope that we will find uh, European ways about addressing them and that, the, you know, the rule of law is part of what we are fighting for in Ukraine, uh, to keep that and to keep democracy alive. And that this joint fight for democracy is the one that unites us. Uh, the, you know, the fight for freedom, liberty, and uh, rule of law is one that unites us also when we come about to talk about other issues. And the reparations is yet a totally different issue, <laughs> which of course is a very a delicate one uh, where colleagues of mine have been working on uh, very intensively. Dr. Brandner, before we let you go, one quick observation. It's very hard for Dalibor and me in this instance to ask you hard questions because you sound like a and you are a true transatlanticist <laughs> and so for us it's like we're just sitting here and nodding and, <laughs> and agreeing but but before we go um uh we also want to ask you about ukraine of course um last time i've had the pleasure of seeing you here in dc it was in the winter time and germany like others in europe um, was racing to um, ship uh, generators to Ukraine as we didn't know um, how the winter is going to end and all the questions were around um, were the winter and how to survive that on the European side and of course in Ukraine. We've also seen now their sort of paused Russian missile attacks again and again on energy infrastructure in Ukraine And we are just hearing rumors and speculating about how much can Ukrainians last. They need all this equipment that is Soviet-style um, uh, pieces of equipment. But on the other hand, the missiles have sort of paused for now, uh, mostly. For the first time in, in a year or so, Ukraine is exporting energy um, to Europe. Interconnectors are making progress. So basically on energy, we want to ask you, or I'd like to ask you, how do you, how do you assess the situation as it stands now with Ukraine? And what are your largest, your most significant concerns going forward in this? Yeah, I think, you know, we have uh, come quite some way in setting up also cooperation mechanisms on replacements necessary and um, working through the European energy community and our actors to, to make sure that we, we are quick um, and do have enough uh, funding in place, which we have actually, by the way, added as the German side um, to also make sure that we have enough funding for that. And as you said, we have also been working on uh, the connections, uh, which are key for Ukraine to be able to export energy. My minister was in Ukraine not too long ago, I think two, three weeks ago, and um, we were bringing German companies also to say, do please do invest in Ukraine. 
and let us help to also work on the energy, the future of the energy in Ukraine, so that we do combine the work on reconstruction with the modernization. And I think that is something that we are working now is on as well, is to bring that, you know, the forward-looking element into the discussion. And I think that is important. We do not only focus, you know, only. It's already a lot of work um, on replacing. But now that we have that momentum, that we can also take a more forward-looking um approach to our energy relationship and that is of course for themselves you know for example energy efficiency is a big issue in ukraine uh, and other questions also like of course new technologies and i think there's a lot of room also for cooperation that we are you know looking at and we're trying to get also german companies to re-export reinvest in ukraine and support that so it's 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 taking it a step further, and we're doing this in close cooperation, of course, with um, our partners. We we don't want to do any of that alone. At the beginning of this podcast, I promised our listeners that we would be joined halfway through by our colleague Giselle Donnelly. She just joined us as we were about to wrap up, so I'm not sure we can fit in a question of hers into the into the conversation. Good to see you again. Just so, um, I'm sorry, we just had a confusion as to the time. Actually, Dalibor, will you indulge me? Of course. Francesca, a couple of years ago, you wrote a piece arguing sort of in favor of European strategic autonomy. Never use autonomy. I never, ever argued in favor. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm shorthanding. I'm shorthanding. Let's say you predicted the Zeitenwende. How about that? <laughs> I, but I would be interested in in your overall view about the strategic attitudes uh, in Berlin and how you see the transatlantic relationship and particularly the U.S.-Germany relationship uh, evolving through all this? Yeah, very good question. You know, it's been interesting because I've been so much working on trying to make that distinction between autonomy, which means you can be alone in the world, and sovereignty in terms of, you know, you have means at your disposal to defend your interests, which I think, you know, is, for me, it's a difference. And, and I think that, you know, working on Europe to become much more resilient, less vulnerable, more ready to take you know, your own destiny in your hands. That's what I've been really working on for years. Um, and I think, you know, in a way, uh, I was very happy that the German coalition treaty was saying that we now need and want to work on European strategic sovereignty in the way that I describe it, not in terms of we want to, you know, get rid of our most important partners or believe that we can be independent of them. Well, if, if you stand next to Macron, there's going to be some... Uh some fallout from it. I know. I've been debating this with the French up and down. <laughs> um, and there is some room where we, you know, where there's an overlap, where I really always also argued, and it was never as easy in the Green Party to say, you know, we need to invest in European defense capabilities. And I think that this is something where we are still not at the end and where we can work together with the French. And where I always said it's in the interest of the Americans if we take a larger share of our responsibility. Because that was also always portrayed of, you know, saying, oh, Miss Brandner just wants to stop the transatlantic relationship. And I was always saying, no, they would be happy if we did step in a bit more and did finance a bit more and did work a bit better together. <laughs> so in a way, I think, you know, we have come quite some way. And I think there are other areas where we still have to become more resilient 
this is an area I'm working on now a lot, which is our, you know, in terms of, for example, raw materials and processed raw materials, where we have a very high dependency. And um, that was one of the first things I started working on here in the ministry. I said, like, this is the next one that we have to work on now. Um, and I'm quite happy that now we have this European Raw Materials Act, that we're building this raw material club with the U.S., that we make it from the beginning a transatlantic endeavor. And yes, there are many areas that we still have to work on. Uh, cyber security, for example, it's still an area that worries me and where we think, where I think we still have to work quite a bit to make us um, better. But yeah, so in a way, I'm still trying to yeah, give us the means we need, you know, in a more difficult world. Wonderful. I'm so, so so thrilled you managed to fit in Giselle's question, albeit in our usual clumsy artisanal way, which goes a long way towards you know illustrating how this podcast is, is, is made. But most importantly, Dr. Brunter, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It is really, really appreciated. Franziska Brandner is a member of the Bundestag and serves as the State Secretary for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. From Dalbo Rohaj, Giselle Donnelly and Julia Zosa. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word, and please make sure to sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.